0: Machine It, written and narrated by Garrett Mathias. This is a story from the very beginning of how I got into working with metal as a student, amateur, enthusiast, and aspiring entrepreneur in the modern machine world. Preface and Dedication I share my opinions of education, time management, building machines, job shop jobs versus making a product, and what quality means when starting out. There are many paths for people to take if this is the journey they desire, and this is my path. I am in no way an expert on this topic of machining, I just found a love for this trade while I was in college studying mechanical engineering technology at Youngstown State University in Youngstown, Ohio. This specific degree is a more towards manufacturing and how mechanical engineering applies to manufacturing. It's really an awesome degree if you generally like to make things. There are two instructors throughout my college career that really helped me find this trade as something I really love to do, thanks to Professor Doug Gross and Mr. Richard Stape. Chapter 1, Early Years. As a young kid, I was always messing around with mechanical things and maybe taking things apart? I don't know, I can't remember that far back. My dad was the one that initially helped pique my interest into the automotive world and racing, specifically drag racing. I can remember going to NHRA, Spring Nationals, held at the National Trail Raceway in Columbus, Ohio every single year until they moved that race to another track in Ohio. My dad would walk me through the pits and try to explain to me how things worked and I might nod every now and again just so he would think I understood what he was talking about. But then again, I was only maybe around 10 years old. It wasn't till later on in life that I would really appreciate that kind of talk. At that point in my life, I was more interested in the pilots of those professional drag racing cars, and I thought that the fame these drivers had might be nice to have someday on top of driving these cars. That's right. Some kids want to be an astronaut, a professional football player, or an actor. I wanted to be a professional drag racer. To all the parents out there, I believe it is essential to instill lifelong hobbies like this to your kids. It will help give them guidance as to what to do with their lives as they grow up. Not just any hobbies, but hobbies that you can do nearly your entire life, not something like football where you can't do that your whole life. Although football is not a bad way to make a living if you play it professionally but chances are you are not going to play professional football. You may be asking yourself, what in the world does this have to do with machining? You have a fair point in asking that. It has everything to do with it. If not for these times right now, I would most definitely not be where I am today. The thought of racing and understanding how vehicles work are what laid the groundwork for everything that I do to this day. By the way, at this time of writing this book, I have just turned 24 years old. I am no longer that young kid anymore, but my dreams of being a professional drag racer are still very much alive, as weird as that is. Most childhood dreams go away once they enter the real world. Growing up, I had one really close friend that shared the same interest in automotive things like me. While we were still young, I mean young enough that we could not drive yet, we would search all over the place trying to find old riding mowers that we could soup up and try to make go faster. When we finally had some money, we found a neighbor that had a rear engine riding mower that he was willing to just give us, that's crazy. All we had to do is ask and we didn't even have to pay him anything. He even helped us get it started and we just drove it off. We lived in South Central Ohio at that time, so we were in the middle of absolute nowhere, which is really nice if you want to be loud. We did everything imaginable to that mower. We took it through the woods, rolled it enough times to where the oil would leak into the combustion chamber and white smoke would pour uncontrollably while we were dying laughing as we tried to flip it back over. We tried giving it a better exhaust, changing the pulleys so the driven gear would spin quicker, and taking the governor out of the carburetor so it would bring more fuel into the combustion chamber and all that good stuff. Aside from that kind of thing, I didn't do much more as a kid besides play sports. Very few video games were played for me. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, there's plenty of money to be made in the video game world, but that's just not for me. A few years later, when we were finally old enough to drive, my grandpa had an old 1969 Ford F-100 pickup truck that hadn't rained in a while. He said if I got it running, then I could just have it. So that's what we did. We got a few things here and there for it and actually got it running. I drove it back and forth to high school for a while until I found a 1988 Ford Mustang that I just had to have for the price that it was offered for. Ever since I started watching drag racing on a regular basis, I knew I wanted a Fox Body Mustang to race at some point. So I found one in my price range, sold my grandpa's truck that he gave me, and now I was finally one step closer to racing. Once I got that car home, it was a mess. This Mustang we got was drag raced previously, so there wasn't much interior pieces left, and the wiring was a straight up bird's nest. We worked on it to get things looking correct and got some more interior pieces from a car swap meet, and I ended up driving that car back and forth to high school for the rest of my high school career. If I were to add all these experiences up, I would say that they helped me understand what it means to work hard at something. They taught me to be more technically savvy, both mechanically and electrically, and taught me determination to work towards a goal. Chapter 2, Growing Up, Is Depressing High school was a breeze and it was very enjoyable to hang out with friends literally all day long. Of course, at the time, we don't look at it that way. We, as kids, see it almost as a punishment having to go to school every morning and stay there all day. Now I could go on for a while talking about the stuff they should teach in high school to prepare a person for their future career and for adulthood in general, but that is a rabbit hole I do not want to go down. I just know that my high school was just about the worst for preparing you for adulthood, and on top of that, they did a terrible job giving kids experience in manufacturing. We barely had a small wood shop and that's about it. No lathes, no mills, and this was in 2012. Once I got to college, by asking my peers, I was able to compare how other high schools prepared them and gave them the opportunity to experience just about anything to try and help see what interested them in hopes that they would find a passion to pursue that as a career in the workforce or in college, and then the workforce, of course. Before actually committing to the college I attended, I wanted to go to the University of Northwestern Ohio to learn high-performance automotive to hopefully work on a pit crew for an NHRA drag racing team at some point. Until one day, I told my English teacher what I wanted to do, and she straight up told me, no way. She said I needed to be an engineer or something. That made me nervous because I knew there was a lot of very in-depth math involved with engineering. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure why I was so afraid. I really enjoyed math, and I was halfway decent at it. Anyway, I applied to the University of Toledo in Toledo, Ohio, for mechanical engineering technology. I know what you're thinking. This guy said he went to Youngstown State University. You're correct. That teacher that encouraged me to go to school to be an engineer just happened to go to the University of Toledo. So by default, she told me to go to Toledo to get this degree. So that's what I did initially. Okay, so here's a little bit of a short backstory. In high school, I was halfway decent at pole vault, you know, the track and field event. My dad was so into watching me play sports that I don't think he could have given it up so quickly. So after I already signed up for my classes at Toledo and had orientation My dad found YSU. This school had a men's track and field team, unlike Toledo, and they had the same engineering technology degree that I wanted to pursue. I quickly emailed the head coach to see if I could walk on. A few days later, they said I could walk on, and a few days after that, I was setting up to go to YSU instead. Looking back, I was really all over the place with what I wanted to do, but I mean, that's pretty much how any kid is these days for the most part. But anyway, it all worked out. And I had fun doing everything that I did. I didn't do pole vault in college because my dad wanted me to. I generally wanted to do it as well. In the next chapter, I will get into my college education and other higher education. But I want to quickly go over the opportunities that college can give you. Now, it was very rough for me being three hours away from home from everything that I knew and grew up with. And I immediately just wanted to go home. But maybe it's just me being stubborn that no matter how miserable I was... I just had to stick it out, and that's exactly what I did. So basically, college is a huge networking event, and all you have to do is open your mouth and get to know people. You never know when the people you meet might help you later on in life, especially if you share the same interests, which leads me to the reason I joined a fraternity. Yes, I was that stereotypical college frat dude for a while. Although I did not treat it the stereotypical way, for the most part, I learned to network with others, I became close friends with the guys in my fraternity, and I learned what their interests were, and while doing that, I learned a lot more things that I thought I was not interested in just by listening to the other guys. Another big part of the fraternity is that it is run exactly like a business, and it just so happens that I eventually became the president of that fraternity during my junior year of college. This was by far harder than anything I had ever taken on, but it made me grow up a lot faster now that I had to look after 25 other college guys and made sure they represented the fraternity in the correct manner, I took care of all the financials going in and out of the fraternity, and I literally took legal action against those that did not hold up their end of the financial obligations to the fraternity. Without getting too much into it, this helped me grow up quick and really understand what it's like to run a business with more people in it than just me. I realized during my time as president, I really tried to focus on honing in on my leadership skills. Of course, you have people that do not like it, but that's just how it is. You do what's best for the business. Oh, and one more thing colleges tend to have a lot of money, equipment, and software. If you happen to be in college or planning to go to college, then I would go out of my way to learn as much as you possibly can on equipment and different software at school because, believe me, there is a lot of more technical equipment in the real world. And this will just help you get a leg up on the real world if you happen to enter a large corporate manufacturer like I did. Basically having the knowledge of specific machinery or having the knowledge of a type of software is like having a skill. Similar to how welding would be a skill someone has. Chapter 3. School and Higher Education Now onto the education side of things. There are a lot of people saying that in this day and age you do not need to go to college to be successful. And that is 100% true. You can start a business or getting your foot in the door at some local successful business after high school and still be in great shape in regards to being a successful human being i have noticed that since i went to college i have expanded my knowledge to things that i never thought were interesting before for example i learned so much about financial things business law and other useful things just because i was curious always be curious i also took a lot of dumb filler classes like jazz I kind of enjoyed it because I like music, but that's neither here nor there. It's kind of a filler class anyway. But I really did not need that whatsoever, but it still helped form my mind to the way I think today and instill much more curiosity. So what I'm trying to say is college may be stupid because it can put you in a crazy amount of debt and you can get very little out of it, oh, but only if you choose to handle it that way. Only if you choose a like a ridiculous major or go to school that is outrageously priced, then I would say that is a bad decision. To this day, I still have no idea why people would put themselves in over $100,000 in debt just to learn a few things and get a piece of paper. I literally went to school for $25,000 with a very marketable major, got a job, paid off my loans in less than two years and boom I got a lifetime worth of knowledge in that place just because I was curious about more than just the things that pertained to my major. Like I said before just being curious about things allowed me to talk with people I wouldn't have normally spoke to and allowed me to learn things I wouldn't have normally learned. It just so happens that you might run into a person that is equally excited about what they are learning as you are about what you are learning and that's what makes things exciting about life in general. Talking with people that are excited about these amazing things in life seems to energize you about the work that you like to do, which is always a healthy thing for you as well. Since I decided to go to school for mechanical engineering technology, which is more manufacturing based, I was exposed to many different types of manufacturing technology, but still the amount of technology that is actually out in the real world, like vision systems and other stuff that can be very complicated, and it was never really taught in school because things like that are always changing. The main point I'm coming to is that I got into machining because I was exposed to it in college, where I should have been shown all those types of manufacturing while I was in high school. Anyway, in a required class we had to learn about how these manufacturing technologies worked. We had to learn the basics of metrology, anatomy of basic machinery, and types of materials. This, for some reason, excited me. Another backstory. At the beginning of my collegiate career, I had to take a Basics of Engineering class, or something like that. Anyway, I had to write a paper saying why I wanted to become an engineer, and what I wanted to do with my degree after I got it. Well, for some reason, I decided that I wanted to become a CNC programmer and operator, or something along those lines. I still don't know where I got this idea, or why I thought it would be a good idea to be associated with CNC machining. Apparently, it must have looked really cool to me at some point. Now at this time, I never once touched a manual metal cutting machine, let alone a CNC machine. I must have seen one along the way somewhere, which I still haven't figured out how yet. I wish I still had that paper. I ended up saving it on a flash drive, then I left that flash drive in a computer lab, and of course someone stole it so I no longer have it. The whole point of saying this is that I always knew I wanted to program CNC machines and run them. Now back to talking about the manufacturing technology class that we had to take. While in this class we learned a lot about the art of manufacturing things, we also had a lab class with it. This lab was what really opened my eyes to manufacturing. This lab had to do with manual machining only. We had a milling project done on a bridgeport mill and a lathe project done on some old crappy lathe. They were equally as fun and dangerous, which of course further interested me in the trade. Hmm. Come to think of it, I'm not sure why a bunch of would-be modern-day engineers were learning such an old trade. Either way, this would lay the final groundwork for deciding what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I enjoyed my other classes like machine design, thermodynamics, etc but this class was one of the most amazing classes by far. This class got us up out of our seats and got us thinking on how to make something real out of a block of metal, which is pretty much nothing. I think that's why I liked it so much. It's because I was physically active and applying my knowledge to visualize how this widget is to be made. The first thing I ever made still sits on my desk to this day and I look at it every once in a while to remind myself that it was that widget that got me so incredibly interested in this trade. Whenever I get frustrated or sick of doing a particular task, I think back to how enjoyable it was to make that part and how much fun I had completing it. Later on, I would take an elective class in CNC machining. This elective cemented my decision for wanting to do machine work for a living. The elective was called numerical control. Tying this back to the beginning where I wrote that paper saying I wanted to be a CNC programmer, this class taught just that. I was completely captivated by this class from day one we learned the history of cnc speaking of that i feel bad for the guys that had used the punch tape to program cnc machines if you don't know what the punch tape is look it up crazy stuff anyway we learned the anatomy of cnc we learned g-code for the mill and lathe and had hands-on training in the lab where we learned on a haas mini mill and a Haas ST10 lathe base model. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my college career and I didn't want it to end. My first parts made on the CNC mill and CNC lathe still sit on my desk right beside the ones I made on the manual mill and lathe to further remind me of where I started and why I wanted to do this. Everyone in the class thought I was some sort of suck up to the teacher. I would make setup sheets when no one else would and I would be fascinated by learning the code to program these CNC machines. Learning the codes gave me the power to know and understand everything the machine was doing, so once I got into using CAM software to program parts, I still knew everything that the machine was trying to do because I learned how to code by hand, and I very much appreciate our teacher for making us learn to manual code first because it has gotten me to correct a few mistakes that the computer has made in the code that was generated from the CAM software. If you are unaware of CAM software, it stands for Computer Aided Manufacturing. Basically, you can easily tell a tool to run a path around a contour of a 3D modeled part on a computer and it will generate code by itself so that the machine can understand it and run the tool path in real life to create the part. This is just an easier, quicker way to program CNC machines without having to manually code a program from start to finish and it's also very easy to make a drastic mistake if you manually code something in my opinion. Of course, I currently use a CAM software to have the programs created, but I try to always glance over the code before I run the program because it still makes me feel like I have a little bit more control over what is about to happen in my machine. So after making the decision to go to school and open my mind to many different things, it has been very invaluable to me. I believe I wanted to learn CNC machining, but I also wanted to learn the mechanical engineering aspect of things as well. That's the reason I didn't do an apprenticeship or go to school just to learn to machine things. In the end, I say college is 100% worth it. Just don't be dumb. Go somewhere cheap that can get you the same piece of paper as some place that costs six times as much. It will be worth it in the end. Chapter 4. Educate Yourself I did not want my CNC learning experience to end with the final of the numerical control class I took in college. I knew I had to keep learning. Not only learn more about what different machines can do, but other software as well. My teacher of that CNC class, Mr. Stape, was more than willing to keep up with me and help me since he saw that I took a deeper interest in machining. He helped me get into a Mastercam course through Mastercam where I could learn on my own at my own pace while still in school. If you are unaware, Mastercam is a computer-aided manufacturing software used to write toolpaths and generate G-code to run CNC machines. Even though I do not use Mastercam now. I still learned a lot about programming toolpaths and just all around how to program and set up parts to be machined. This knowledge of Mastercam was somewhat carried over when I started learning Autodesk Fusion 360. Although I had learned different computer-aided design softwares throughout my college career, I realized the one thing that held me back from using these in business was the cost. I learned SolidWorks, which costs $5,000 initially and something like $1,000 annually. I learned Autodesk Inventor, which costs roughly $8,000. I taught myself Mastercam, but the cost was somewhere around $17,000. That is absolutely insane, especially for a person that wants to start a business that revolves around 3D modeling and machining. I was still in college when I heard about Autodesk Fusion 360. This was a godsend for me and thousands of others that wanted to start out designing, 3D printing, machining, etc. It was not as nearly powerful then as it is now, but I was ecstatic to have it and I knew I needed to learn it if I wanted to be successful with the business model I wanted to go after. On top of everything I was doing my senior year of college, I started learning Fusion 360 and all that it had to offer me so I knew what to expect when I started a business that revolved around machining later on. Upon graduating college, I still continued to use Fusion 360 and watch YouTube videos of machines that I wanted and people I envied because of the businesses that they owned. I started learning the trade even though I had no real experience in a production machine shop, just a shop that allowed us to make parts at school for a class. This posed a problem for me. I knew I needed to pursue the business of machining because I felt that it was my calling for some reason, yet I knew nothing about it, at least the business side of it. YouTube videos can only teach you so much. After watching Titans of CNC, John Saunders of NYC CNC, and many others, I knew I had to get first-hand experience of how a job shop or machine shop works and operates from day to day. It wasn't until after I graduated and got a job that I got this first-hand experience. My first job out of college was working for Honda of America Manufacturing. The machine shop there was absolutely amazing. In fact, it was the first job shop that I had ever been in. Now this shop was basically a support for the entire plant. They did not make any production parts, just parts to aid manufacturing. Anyway, they had half million dollar Mazaks, track mills, makinos, and akumas. It was heaven for me. After starting my job, I wanted to be down there every single day. I only got that chance to go down there when I needed parts to be made for a project I had been working on. I would ask as many questions as I could to the shift supervisor in the machine shop. His name is Tom. And I'm sure Tom was sick of me my first year of working, but he lightened up eventually because we found a common interest and he found out I wasn't playing around when it came to machining and learning the trade. Every time I went into the machine shop at work, I'd see a part and ask how in the world did you make that? Then someone would always show me how they did it. I asked what kind of tooling they used for specific applications, fixturing, etc. Everything I could ask, I asked about it. I was able to shadow Tom, the supervisor, for a day to see how he routed work and how I got assigned to specific machines. I was also able to shadow a machinist to see how he broke down jobs and decided on a method to make the part. This all comes with forming good relationships and learning to do just that will help set up a somewhat successful business later on. What I am getting at is that you must take it upon yourself to learn the trait, especially when you have no formal training in an actual machine shop. Heck. I even made good relationships with guys from outside machine shops and they allowed me to come in and just watch for a day and they would help explain to me how they made specific parts, how they fixtured it, even the most complex parts I could ever imagine thinking of, which was really super helpful. It's just really amazing to see businesses operate and make money by making awesome parts for people. Of course, you can buy books and watch YouTube videos all day long and learn about materials, how to machine different materials, watch guys run their businesses... But that does not and will not compare to seeing the real thing real time, like I've said before. I would urge you to always get out there and give yourself the opportunity. The opportunity to get out there and educate yourself at all costs. Giving yourself the opportunity to learn this trade is only part of the deal. Trial and error seems to be the other part. For me, I started out with super cheap tooling, knowing that I would be breaking end mills, dolling drill bits, installing the motor on the machine. That seemed to be the best route to take at the time. Run the machine really conservative or what you think is conservative and go on from there. I realize that there is sometimes that you think a certain feed or inches per minute, millimeters per minute, whatever, and speed and RPM of the machine is is conservative but is actually not conservative at all. But you won't know until you run the machine anyway, and that really is the best way to learn. Just try something. I mean, think it through to the best of your ability, but in the end, it's better to just try and fail than to waste time trying to be methodical about every single move. Not saying that watching YouTube videos is bad. You can take tips from them and everything else, but the best teacher is to just try. And from there, you will gain the knowledge to help yourself with every single part that you make. Chapter 5. Starting Out Let's start with the real reason I decided to start out with creating a business. That reason is to help fund my dream of drag racing. As I stated before, I really love drag racing and it is the basis for where I am today. I am actively trying to pursue drag racing as a way to have fun and promote my business. The dream is still very much alive and I still believe I will be there at some point in my life. At this point I realized that it doesn't have to be professionally, but I just have to be out there, at least on a medium sized stage, racing against others who share the same passion. Once I started working my day job for a couple months and I started making a significant amount of money, I really wanted to get a CNC machine to start making stuff. One day I couldn't handle it anymore and I broke down and finally bought a CNC machine. I got the first affordable thing I could get my hands on, which was a carbide 3D Shapeoko XXL. I got this thing and it was absolutely amazing. I couldn't have asked for anything more for the price it was purchased for. Now I couldn't cut much metal with this thing, I actually didn't cut any metal at all with it, but that didn't matter because I had a CNC machine. I started out designing some pallet wood cutouts in Fusion 360 and cut them out with the CNC and sold these on Etsy and a few other craft shows. Then after a while, I came up with a simple idea that I could test out Kickstarter with. I wanted to manufacture wooden coasters with my Shapeoko. The Shapeoko did very well cutting out the coasters that I designed. But getting more into the technical side of things, the Shapeoko had a tough time doing tool changes, and I had to do tool changes so I could engrave the coasters. These tool changes were very hard to complete and get the same amount of tool stick out as the original tool length. That probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you don't own a Shapeoko. Anyway, it was a great easy way to test out Kickstarter with. My thoughts on Kickstarter is that it's a great platform, but I would definitely recommend starting with something very simple and have a low funding goal just to get your feet wet and to see what it's like to have to fulfill your promise after your project is funded. All this did very well for a while, but I knew in my heart that it was not for me at all. As I stated before, I learned manual machining and CNC machining in college. We cut metal with those machines, and I was sitting here cutting wood. That was very disheartening to me for some reason. Still to this day, I do not like cutting wood. For whatever reason, it's just not fun. It took me nearly one year for me to get rid of that Shapocha and upgrade to something I knew I would truly enjoy, the Tormach PCNC-770. At this point, it is worth noting that I also purchased a Formlabs SLS or Selective Laser Centering 3D printer at this time. I wanted that printer because I knew it would print parts in wax to be molded and have that wax burned out of the mold for lost wax casting. For some reason, I had the urge to make rings, so that was the main reason for getting this 3D printer. I made a few rings here and there, sold some on Etsy, and then one day I decided to sell that 3D printer, and that's exactly what I did. I knew my ring casting career was over, and I figured I could sell it to gather more money for a new CNC plasma machine project which I will get into the story of later. If I were to get a new 3D printer, I would just get a cheaper extrusion-based FDM or fused deposition modeling printer instead of the SLS. It seems to me that they are easier to use and maintain than the SLS printers. Most people, or at least myself, like to know how people purchase these expensive machines. So here's my story. My story is not sexy at all by any means. I didn't take money out of my retirement I didn't take my savings down to zero, and I didn't take a loan from the bank or relatives. I simply got a signing bonus from work. Adding more to the backstory, I worked for a very large automotive manufacturer for almost one full year as a contract engineer, but at almost one full year of being a contract employee, they decided to bring me on full-time as a company employee, and I got a decent-sized signing bonus for that. Although the bonus did not pay for all the machine cost, I knew I would be buying a machine, so I previously saved and saved from the time I got the Shape Boko to the time I bought the Tormach 770 and had plenty to spare. Like I said, not a sexy story, but it got the job done. You may be wondering, why didn't you just get a used Haas mini mill or something like that? Well, at the time I lived in a small condominium with a tiny two-car garage and there was a car parked in that garage along with the mill so there's just no way I could have gotten a smaller industrial style machine in that garage, unfortunately. Adding a little more to the backstory, the place I worked is located on the northeast side of Ohio, and it just so happens that my girlfriend that I met in college also lived over that way. So I lived with her and her mom for a year and a half before we moved out to get our own place. So I really have to thank her mom for allowing me to make a ton of noise in the garage nearly every day of that year and a half. And also for letting me share the garage with her. After we moved out, I took control of our garage and it turned into my own shop and it was huge. Equaling what a three car garage would be. Back to the good stuff here. I have the mill, but no business and really no way of getting any business. I mean, I had a business as far as the state of Ohio could see. I was an actual registered LLC to the state. I tried to get business by going to other machine shops to see if I could pick up some of their work if they happened to be behind on their jobs. I contacted other machine shops to explain to them the capabilities I have. Once I explained the machine that I have, then they stopped listening when I said I'd run my shop out of my garage. So I did what every modern day kid does turned to the social medias of the world. I started making random stuff until I realized I could manufacture some parts for my Ford Fiesta ST. I noticed that some companies were making parts and they were expensive, so I wanted to design these parts on my own, my own way, and produce them myself at a lower cost. I soon became obsessed with the idea of people having my products more than the profit I was making from them, and since my life did not depend on the income I was making from the parts, I could really charge whatever I wanted, although I still wanted to make a healthy profit. Making these parts really solidified the fact that I could make real money with the parts I made. Not only make money but make a profit. The Tormach 770 made a ton of parts and I am very glad to have it first before any real expensive industrial machine. I really had no intentions of getting manual machines because I knew they were limited as to what I could make and I knew I wanted to make more complex parts so the CNC machine was a no-brainer to me. Chapter 6 Getting Jobs and Making Products I think I get this question the most whenever there is a new guy on the block that wants to start machining and I'm guilty of this as well. I even asked a ton of guys this same question when I first started. They might say, go visit the local Chamber of Commerce or create a Facebook page for specific niches that you want to machine for. Which I completely agree with all that, but it is still much harder than that to find jobs, especially when you want to just run a job shop that is open to all niches, not just one specific thing. Don't get me wrong, there seems to be plenty of niche job shops out there that make a ton of money making random parts for a very specific niche. For example, some shop might be in the hydraulic fittings niche so they always get jobs for hydraulic fittings from contractors that are always breaking them for whatever reason. That is a very specific example of how a niche job shop might work, at least in my mind. Now I'm not saying this is the best way to go about getting jobs as I'm sure there are many different cases where guys started job shops right out of the gate and started getting a bunch of orders to make random parts, but that's not the way that it happened for me. I started with a niche group making products for people that own Ford ST vehicles, as I stated before. This was fairly easy for me because I owned that type of car, and I really enjoyed doing this because it helped me understand the customer and what they really want in a machine product. I dealt with customers firsthand and really got to know them in order to sell my products to them. At this point, I have phased out selling all my ST products just because I realized that it is a limited market and Ford has since stopped producing them in the US. Selling these products gave me the confidence to machine metal and make good parts. From here, I started showcasing my parts on Instagram, Facebook, and creating videos for YouTube. I was able to at least catch the eye of a few people and they asked me to machine parts for them. Either random people found me firsthand from YouTube or I got referred to by people that watched my YouTube channel. After I created my Facebook account there was some local people that found me and I was asked to make some parts for them as well. Don't get me wrong, there really wasn't a whole lot of people that found me, but there was a few and it was really exciting to see these customers find me organically. This wasn't the only way I was able to get these job shop jobs though. I would encourage anyone and everyone that wants to get into this field of work to get some social media to showcase your work. I'm not saying that you have to make videos, but just some type of social media page to showcase because whether you like it or not, we do live in a digital or social media age. What I'm getting at is there is other guys on these so-called social media platforms that share the same interest as you and some guys will often be willing to give you tips on different things. This is how I came across a platform called Zometry, spelled with an x but pronounced Zometry. Hearing about this platform excited me so much that the first day I heard about it, I had to go create a profile. For those that do not know, Zometry is basically an online bidding website for machine parts and other manufactured parts. Basically, if people want something made, they go onto this website, post their 3D model and drawing, and then basically wait for someone to say they will make their part for an agreed upon price. This was another one of those godsends for me. I quickly got on, made an account machined a test part, and then waited for the easiest looking job to appear on my job board. It wasn't terribly hard to get accepted as a supplier for Zometry. You just had to prove yourself with a test part, answer some questions, sign a non-disclosure agreement, and you were off. Let's start off by saying I had no business being a supplier for Zometry. I have no clue how they didn't kick me out. Every job looks so difficult, maybe because I was so worried that I wouldn't make a good part for them and possibly send them something that got rejected. Anyway, I finally took a job, and it really wasn't so bad once you learn to check the quality of your part, which I will get into much greater detail later. However, I did send them some crap parts, and they did get rejected. It was here that I really learned about quality, and what it meant to make a real job shop job part. At this point, I still don't really like to use Zometry all that much because I still have a day job, and lead times on parts in Zometry are very tight. For instance, most parts have a two-day to two-week lead time and most of the stuff I accepted was somewhere along the lines of 5 day lead time. This was a huge problem for me because by the time I ordered material and whatever tooling I needed, then I had maybe a day or two to machine the parts then ship them out. It was always hectic for the most part, but I was never more than a day late on my part shipments. Doing these parts helped me gain a certain type of experience with fixturing as well. I started to understand what it meant to make fixtures and make good fixtures at that. I tried out new ways to machine types of parts and pay close attention to how others fixtured their parts in order to get a better grasp on how things could be machined. After showcasing some of these parts on Instagram and YouTube, it opened the door for organic customers just a little bit more. Like I said, some people found me through referrals from others that watch and follow my content, and that is really the best feeling. I ended up making some cool things for a DIY CNC build, a Batmobile restoration, and other restoration parts for classic cars. I really enjoyed doing the job shop jobs where people found me organically, and I didn't have to go through a whole website and bid on job and all that stuff. Now so far I have talked about doing job shop jobs for people and making products. Which do you prefer? For me? I'm not sure yet. But I am leaning towards having just products instead of doing job shop work. Now let me explain why. Since I started doing job shop jobs they were always someone else's parts that they designed And more often than not, I never saw the outcome of that part. Although I got paid, I was never able to see the part being used in the real world. Some of you may be thinking, who cares as long as you get paid? To me, it just doesn't seem right that you don't get to see your parts working in action. And it just makes the job a little bit less fulfilling. The products I was making wasn't anything to get excited about either. They were mostly cosmetic parts to dress up your car. I did make some performance parts early on, but I stopped those fairly quick. The difference here is that I got to see those products or parts being used in action. Guys would put their parts on their cars, post pictures on Instagram with my parts and tag me. That was the ultimate fulfillment. I was always excited to see people showcasing my parts on their social media accounts. On top of all that, there was this one product I made called the ST Cubby Cover. This part covered a useless cubby hole on the Ford Fiesta ST. I always heard guys talking about it and how useless this cubby was, so I decided to try and make a cover for it. I went through maybe six different prototypes until I got one that worked. Then I made my first run of about 15 or so. They sold very quick once they got showcased on a Facebook group. So I went to make another batch and they sold out in less than a week until I finally would make a lot at one time just to carry some inventory so I didn't have to keep setting the part up in the machine. This was my first experience with making a product that no one else has made before. I did not know that no one else tried to make this product before, but it was a great feeling seeing something that I designed, prototyped, and manufacturing being used in the real world. Also the feeling that I was the only one to have ever made it was unreal and I wanted more of that feeling. Once again, this part was nothing to get excited about, it was just a small cosmetic part, but it was something that I did now after explaining all that I will definitely lean towards designing and manufacturing more products in the future the products I will design will either be improvements on existing products or products that I will have never made before because that will give me the most fulfillment and I'm guessing they will be a little bit easier to market that is if they are useful making a product is a longer road but once you develop more than one product for a specific niche you will be able to refine it to the point where you find the right people for your products I would say pick an easy product for a specific niche listen to the people in the market for a product like yours see what all they want in a product like that in order to refine it and make it better a better product always sells in my opinion it seems obvious but maybe not so obvious but then you catch yourself on amazon buying always buying that cheaper product and then when that product breaks you go back and buy the one that's better it's most likely more expensive so that's how that happens so it's not near it's it's obvious but not obvious at the same time One last thing, it is easier to gain a following of a company or brand when you have a product to be associated with. If you just have a job shop, it's much harder to brand yourself. Chapter 7. Quality. Spend money on it. Don't make bad parts. Learn and purchase good metrology equipment or suffer the consequences, like I did. As mentioned previously, I was afraid to take on these job shop jobs because I thought my quality wouldn't be good enough for them. And also, as previously stated, my quality was terrible and it still isn't the greatest, but really, that is all a part of learning. Always do it right the first time. If you tell yourself the way you're making a part is good enough, then most likely it's not the right way to make it. Just like everything else, there is a right way and a correct way to do something. I remember taking some tests throughout my college years where there was more than one right answer, but only one correct answer. These tests always annoyed me to the fullest, but they taught a valuable lesson. That lesson being that there is a right way and a more right way. And that is just how life is and that's how it always will be. So what I am getting at is there are ways to get the job done but that doesn't mean it got done the correct way. Just take your time and check yourself as you go. There have been multiple times in my very short machining career so far that I have machined parts right but they were not correct because the customer did not like the way that they were machined and of course you have to remake them because the customer is always right. This may sound a little odd how I'm explaining this and maybe this isn't coming across correctly ironically. This is how I see it. I guess you could maybe call these parts defective. Although these parts were machined right They may have a defect here and there. For example, if the cutter put a small scratch down the side of the part but everything else is perfectly fine, or if the way the part was held marred the part just slightly but the tolerances were all okay. You could say that the entire part was right and to the tolerance specification given but in the end it was not correct and you sent a defective part. This goes to show that there is more to quality than just the tolerance specification written on the drawing. This type of thing is 100% avoidable if you just do it the correct way the first time. Don't go and try to find the easy way out because it is always wrong. I shouldn't say wrong, I should say not correct. I'll use an example I did. I had to machine a 120 degree V shape in a part, but instead of angling the part like I should have and milled the V with an end mill, I bought a 120 degree spot drill thinking that that would solve it. It definitely made 120 degree V, but it left small marks on each pass because the spot drill doesn't come to a perfect point. It's sort of hard to visualize, but that definitely cost me. It sucks to learn like that, but the only true way to learn is to suck really bad until you get good at it. Then there is the quality of the part that does refer to tolerance specification on the drawing. Even though this is much more straightforward than the other aspect of quality that I just brought up, I still struggle with this as well. To start off with, I had a set of steric calipers that weren't even digital. I used these things to measure every part that came off the Tormach CNC mill. For the larger parts, I used the height gauge and a small granite surface plate that came with the Tormach. This got the job done for the most part, but the accuracy of these high-tech pieces of metrology—I speak high-tech in quotations—wasn't always trustworthy, and eventually got me into some trouble. And I ended up also using the CNC mill to measure my parts with the digital readout, basically, and the Hymer. Still, not the best way to go about measuring parts. Pen gauges, Joe blocks, height gauge, and good calipers. These are the real essentials to at least stand a chance against measuring parts to see if they pass the quality test set by the customer. Of course, a person would much rather have some type of CMM or coordinate measuring machine perfectly measure their parts but even the more simpler manual cmms are out of most guys reach when first starting out i guess nothing really is simple when you're talking about measuring something to tenths of a thousands of an inch or microns for you metric guys out there anyway measuring things can be tough if you don't have the right equipment and i for one have paid the price multiple times because of it as the title of this chapter states spend money on it this is one thing you should not be afraid of spending money on if you want to be in the machining world. Now, I am not even remotely close to being an expert on measuring things or metrology, but I do know that it takes the right equipment to get things measured right. Obviously, as you get deeper into machining parts for people, your metrology equipment will grow and your quality check processes will be more defined. This has, in fact, happened to me. First off, my equipment has gotten much better. Now, I don't get things calibrated, most of the parts I do really don't require tight tolerances. At least I don't accept parts that require these tolerances because I know better than that with the machines that I currently have in my arsenal. I guess that would really be another thing for guys first starting out: don't accept jobs that you are not completely, one hundred percent certain that you can machine within tolerance. On to the quality check processes. To start off with, I always check every bore with pen gauges. The gauges are really cheap through Tormach and they still have really tight tolerances. I checked them with a micrometer, with a calibrated micrometer, that is. Along with other bores that are larger, I use snap gauges, then measure the snap gauges with a micrometer, or if the bore was too large, then I'll use calipers to measure the snap gauge. Now I know that using calipers with snap gauges are the wrong way to go about measuring things like that, but when you're on a budget, then that is the only way to go. Then I measure all large overall dimensions with calipers And if those dimensions are small enough, then I just use micrometers. The only real problem I have at the moment is geometrical dimensions. For example, measuring the center of a hole to an edge of a part. This is not very easy to measure with manual metrology tools, but easy to do with your CNC machine. Like I said, this probably isn't the best way to go about it either, just because your machine could have more error in it than the metrology tools themselves. So it's really hard to use the CNC machine to measure specific dimensions of the part while it sits in the machine. So when starting out with nearly no metrology tools, it seems like this would be the best way to go about it. Just make sure you have the capability to make the part to specification before you accept the part. At the end of this chapter, I just want to make it clear that I am no expert on measuring tools or metrology equipment like I stated before. And while I slightly contradicted myself saying when you're on a budget that's the only way to go, Sometimes you really don't have any money to buy metrology tools, but what I'm saying is when you have the money, don't be afraid to spend it because it will by far help you in the long run when you need to measure parts for a customer. Chapter 8. Time. Once I started working the day job after college, I really enjoyed having the money to spend on really whatever I wanted. As I've said previously, I saved up enough money to purchase my machines with this job. Although it is very nice to have that job, I really hated going to it every single day, as most everyone else does. Now, my my job got better after a while, after I took on more responsibility. But at first, I hated going to it just because I knew I had to come back home, and I only had a couple hours to work on the machines, as we'll get into here. I drove one hour to work and one hour home from work. I did that when I lived with my girlfriend's mom, and even when we moved to our new place, I ended up driving an hour to and from work as well. You may be wondering why I didn't move closer to work, and that is because we got an amazing deal to rent a house with a decent amount of land and a bigger garage, so we took them up on the deal, but it was only five minutes closer to work. Oh well, I didn't care. I had a huge garage all to myself, so here I am wasting nearly two hours of my day just driving to the day job. Now, at that day job, on average, I spend 10 hours a day there. Sometimes, if something big is going on, then I can spend up to 12 hours there. So here I am spending at least 12 hours of my day On something that doesn't really directly help me grow my business I got up in the morning around 430 and leave home around 5 a.m. I get to work around 6 a.m. and work until 4 p.m. I get home around 5 15 p.m. get everything ready for the next day lunches etc and a small workout for 20 minutes or so I sit down on my computer around 6 p.m. reply to emails get on Autodesk fusion 360 reply to YouTube comments print shipping labels pack products and get down to the garage to start working on whatever needs to be done around 630 or 7 o'clock. Now I can maybe work for two to three hours until I have to stop, clean up the shop, put away everything, sit back down to my computer and document and record the time I spent on a job in the job shop. A quick diverge from the topic here, but I made a document that is used to record the amount of time that I spend on a job or anything I spend any amount of time on in the shop and then I add any comments as to what happened during that job Um, I used this feeds and speeds instead of this, and it, it worked better, and so on. That allowed me to look back on these sheets when I was quoting new work, and I could reference how long specific jobs took to get an accurate quote for the current jobs. Okay, back to the main topic here. In order to get six hours of sleep, I needed to be in bed by 10.30, and that rarely happens. This means I might have three hours every night to work on stuff in the shop. Now, that may seem like a lot, but the distractions are very real. Even eating is what I would call a distraction. In the end, if everything goes perfect, then three hours is normally the best I can do time-wise, three hard-working hours. This is something that I struggle with every day. I can never seem to get much done in that three hours. To help cope with this, I kept a small notebook with me at all times during my day job, so I can write important tasks to be completed when I get home from my day job. And when I write in that notebook, it always seems like I'm writing something important down for my day job, but 90% of the time, I was just writing down what I was going to do when I get home from work and planning exact times that I have allotted myself for a certain task. This was the best way I was able to go about planning my time while at work. Now there were some times I would literally do some research at work to cut down on research time that I did at home. This was not as easy as just planning my time in a notebook, but it still worked out. Most of the things I researched were close to the things I was working on in my day job anyway, so it didn't look like I was looking up ridiculous things. Now, I don't want it to seem like I was slumping at my day job. I still worked very hard at my day job, and I had a decent amount of responsibility. I was just able to find some, quote, free time to work on my business stuff for home, which I was thinking about most of the time anyway. I understand this will be hard for some people to achieve. I am very lucky to have had the freedom at my day job to allow me time to think on something other than my day job. Some people's day job requires work 100% from when the work day starts to when it stops, which means you have no freedom to really think about what you can do when you get home from that day job, but hopefully those people only have to work their eight hours and go home, so they may have a little extra time to work on their business when they do get home, as opposed to, I never had that much time. I had to. I always worked some a form of overtime, every single day. Most every single day. Dealing with the uncertainty of the time I was given is always a challenge. You hear of other great entrepreneurs that take huge risks and allot all of their time to the business that they work on. This is what I would love to do, especially since I'm only 24 years old, now 25 actually now that I'm recording this, and I can afford to screw up and still make it out okay in the end of life. Since I'm still fairly young, one of the more important things is that I can stay on my parents' medical insurance until I'm 26. So that's just a perk of being as young as I am right now. So that would give me enough time to try and get something going before I have to get medical insurance myself. That's all if I were to quit my day job. This would be very hard for others as well, especially if they are older and have children of their own. I'm not sure what I would do at that point if I had children of my own and I was over 26 years old. However, I have spoken with other machinist entrepreneurs that have quit their office day job in pursuit of their own happiness that also have kids. They just live very humbly and work hard, which is something I am a very strong proponent for and something I find myself very willing to do. Chapter 9. Building Your Own Machines Going back to my early days when I got my Mustang after I sold my grandpa's truck, that car basically showed me what it's like to do things yourself and it gave me the knowledge of how everything works with that specific vehicle. While I also had the knowledge of how it worked, I also had a better idea of how to troubleshoot it if something happened to go wrong with it. This background will easily flow into what this chapter entails and how things can change when a business gets involved, at least how it changed for me. When I started out, I felt that all these big industrial style machines were way out of my league financially, and they definitely were and they still are. I purchased the Tormach Mill, which was kind of a splurge. I had the money for it, but it was the most I had ever spent at one time. Since I purchased the Tormach CNC mill, I wanted to bootstrap the rest of my operation a little more, just for a a short amount of time. In order to bootstrap, I figured it would be a good idea to build some machines instead of purchase them. This seemed like a super good idea at first, but I quickly realized it may not be the best route for me. But by that point, I was in far too deep in the creation of my DIY CNC plasma machine. It didn't take me very long to design it, and building the base and everything was actually really fun, and and seeing something like that come to life is really satisfying to see something you designed come to life in real, tangible form. Not until it came to the electronic parts did I start to struggle. I got the motors and had no idea how to wire them up to the motor drivers and wire the board that gives the signals to the motor drivers. Not to mention that I had to wait an entire month for the motors and drivers to get shipped to me because the company that I bought them from failed to tell me that they were back ordered. So that sent me way back from my intended finish right off the bat. I did end up getting help from some guys that I met on YouTube. Thanks to creating YouTube videos, I was able to get help from some overly willing guys to help me succeed with my CNC plasma build. I am very grateful to live in a time where we all have this ability to just put ourselves out there and ask for help and actually have others come to help. In this day and age, there are so many niche communities out there that can help you with just about anything you can think of. For example, say you want to make fishing lures. There are forums, YouTube channels, Facebook pages, and Instagram communities out there waiting for you to just look up and ask questions. Back to the main topic at hand. Basically what I'm saying is that it takes the right person with the right circumstance to want to build their own machines. They are what you call tinkerers or DIY guys. On this topic, I believe there are two different types of people. The tinkerers, also called DIY guys, and business owners. Tinkerers, they really enjoy knowing and understanding how things work and they want to make it work for themselves. They build things themselves to say they did it to save a little money, and to understand how things work. But the drawback to that is time. They lose an extremely large amount of time in designing and building these machines, widgets, or whatever. So it's really just about what your time is worth to you. If you can buy a machine for $10,000, or you can design and build your own for 5000 but it takes four full months to build it, then is it really worth it to you? And to that, I say, it depends now you have your business owners i'm going to go out on a limb and say these types of people aren't going to want to spend four months designing and creating a machine when they can go and buy one and start making money with it right away so what are you supposed to do when you're trying to start a business but you need to bootstrap your operation to get things kicked off This was kind of my thought, and this is really kind of what I did. I bought the Tormach and started making stuff right away with it. But I did not do that with the CNC plasma cutter. It took me a while to build, and even after I had it finished, it was still really a work in progress. So say it took me two months to build, which is probably close. How much money could I have made in that two months? $1,000? $2,000? Who knows? But say I would have made $1,500 in that two months, which is probably close. Keep in mind that this is a very, very part-time side gig. The CNC plasma cutter that I made cost $4,000 total. So I was basically $5,500 in the hole. Well, not really in the hole because everything was paid for. I could have bought a CNC plasma table with motors, drivers, and control system without the plasma cutter on eBay for $4,750. That's $4,750. It's called the Wright CNC 4x4 plasma table. I think it's called something like that. And with shipping, that plasma cutter was another $800. So really, in the end, I could have saved roughly $50 making it myself. Now, one could argue that the experience of building it myself would give me better insight into CNC machines and how they operate on a more technical level. Me personally, in hindsight, being twenty twenty, I would have just bought that table on eBay and been done with it. That would have saved me a ton of time and relieved me of a lot of stress. Tinkering has its upside, though. We all grew up being tinkerers, I guess one could say. We want to know how things work, we want to make stuff, and we want to be curious. However, there is a fine line between tinkering and owning a business, as far as I can see. I mean, I haven't owned a business for very long, and I haven't really made a whole lot of money with that business, but I know it upsets me a whole lot when things take too much time or if things don't go as planned, because I don't have a lot of time to work on this stuff in the first place. Since I am doing both job shop work and product manufacturing work, the tinkering has to stop when I start doing any type of work for money. However, there's a certain amount of tinkering that needs to happen in order to get a design for a product and to get it out in the market. One must design, reiterate, and redesign a product before they can actually make a working prototype. That is more along the lines of research and development and not tinkering, which is much more worth it than tinkering itself. Tinkering and trying to make a machine work like the plasma table that I had. I couldn't really label the plasma cutter as research and development because you could say that it didn't directly help grow my business in the market. Really, I could have just bought a new or used plasma machine and that would have been the end of the story. What I'm saying is there is no right or wrong way to go about doing this, but you should probably know where you stand and what your goal is with what you're doing. Don't waste time on something if you know you could be doing something more constructive with your time. Also, business owning and tinkering seems that it should work together in order to make things happen if you are in the business of making products or manufacturing parts for other people. Not that tinkering shouldn't be involved with job shop work, but it is just less likely as it seems to me. It seems more along the lines of there is a dichotomy of tinkering and business owning where you you have to have one but not too much of it. Uh, it's just, it's it can go back and forth. At this point in my career, I realize there's a fine line between tinkering and trying to own a business. There are some things that are truly okay being built in house, for example, the welding table I made was okay because it didn't take much time at all and it actually did really save me a lot of money. The belt grinder that I made was probably where I would draw the line from now on. This was definitely okay to build but anything more technical than that, then I would just buy the machine from companies and people that make it on a daily basis. The 2 inch by 72 inch belt grinder that I made was definitely a fun build. My dad had the electric motor just sitting around his garage, so I decided to put it to use. And it wasn't very technical to build, but it did take some time, but there wasn't a lot of time involved as far as comparing it to the CNC plasma table. So with that, in my mind, I say tinkering and having a business can work together. Just know what your goals are and where you stand and what your technical and financial limit is. So just do your due diligence. Ask yourself if it's worth it to build a widget or a machine or or whatever. Chapter 10 The Henry Ford Lifestyle and Patton This is a little bit of a different chapter, it's short, but it's still as good as the others. If you've seen any of my YouTube videos or Instagram posts, then you'll know that I have posters of Henry Ford and General George Patton in my office. Those posters are there for a good reason. These guys remind me of persistence, following a dream, determination, and having grit, and that's why they're posted on my wall. I started really getting into the history of Henry Ford about halfway through my college career. As you've read previously, I'm a Ford guy. Always owned a Ford car and always will. Anyway, since I'm a Ford guy, I naturally had a stronger interest in the history of the Ford Motor Company, and more specifically, Henry Ford himself. When I think of this guy, I think of an incredible mind, but also very dedicated to his work. He was somewhere around 35 years old when he came out with the first Model T uh, prototype, I believe it was the prototype Model T. Sometimes I'll think about that and realize that I'm still young compared to these other guys. It took them a long time to figure themselves out and get their companies really moving. Now switching gears to Patton. This may seem like an odd person for me to really admire, but still really relevant to my situation. General George Patton's determination and grit was unlike any other that I have read or heard about. First off, he seemed like a real straight shooter. He always told people how it was and that was the end of it. He always did whatever it took to get the job done, sometimes that helped him and sometimes it didn't, but that is reality and that's just how it goes sometimes. So whenever I'm really tired, it's a weekday and I have a bunch of stuff to do. I'll look at the poster of him and realize that he overcame many things when he was tired and when all the men he was leading were tired and he still managed to come out on top and he was in much worse situations than I'll ever be in. This gives me the motivation to keep working on whatever I'm working on to get it done before I go to bed. I think it is really important for others to have these role models like this. This allows people to get a good perspective on what is really possible and it gives them hope that their idea is attainable if their role model was able to achieve their goals as well. If you're like me, you realize that it is hard to do something that most people don't do on a regular basis. Not everyone starts a business in hopes that it will sustain them in the future. Not everyone gets home from work and continues to work. And not everyone has the desire to stop taking a paycheck from someone else and hopes to give them their own paycheck. These guys remind me that you can do whatever you want and you can succeed at it if you work hard enough on the things that matter. Chapter 11. Planning my escape. Of course we all dream about the day where we can quit our day job and run the business full time if that's what you desire. There's been many times where I just didn't want to show up at work anymore because I knew my heart was in programming CNC machines, designing parts and fixtures, and just making stuff in general, not supporting an assembly line. Although that is really not a bad way to make a living, it's just not in my heart. We're always told to follow your heart, or you might hear a person say, you can be anything you want when you grow up. Apparently, that's just something you say to young kids to keep them excited about growing up and giving them something to look forward to. Somehow, one way or another, this goes out the window when you actually grow up. So technically, it's a lie? I desperately want to start out on my own, and I'm more than willing to eat ramen noodles for years before I make any real amount of money, because I know this is what I love to do. This is what I would call taking a calculated risk. Because at this moment in time, I have very few responsibilities. In other words, I do not have many financial obligations or others that are dependent on me. The only person that is dependent on me is my dog. Therefore, I could afford to really live on the very low end of the spectrum. Now, this probably isn't the right way to go about it, but it sounds like it could work for me. I am also in a position where I could probably go back and get a job fairly easily with my degree if I need to. I still want to be a drag racer very badly, and I started building up that same Mustang as I was talking about earlier in this book. My dad and I have started building a bigger engine and working on it so we can race it at some point. My day job has pretty much destroyed most of my time I could be working on it, and when I come home from my day job, I work on building Mojo Manufacturing. Not to mention my car is still back at my parents' house, since all the tools are there, and they live an hour and a half from me, currently. So it's really hard to get back there on the weekends sometimes, because sometimes I work my day job during the weekends. Sometimes I'm doing Mojo manufacturing stuff on the weekends. Sometimes I actually do get to go home on the weekends and work on my car with my dad. Usually if a person gets stuck on something and they can't figure that something out, then they step away for a while and then come back to it with a more clear and level head in order to finally get the problem figured out. In a roundabout way, this is what I plan to do. At this point, I feel like I'm stuck. I don't know what route to take this business, I love designing things, making things, and fabricating things, then sharing those things on social media for others to look at and see what they think. Even then, after all that, I still don't know what to do. So there are three big things that I really enjoy doing with my life. 1. Machining and manufacturing things. 2. Drag racing. 3. Hiking or backpacking. Of those three things, I have only talked about the first two in this book, the third, hiking. It's a big part of my life, ever since I started watching adventure movies like Stand By Me or Lord of the Rings. Also, continuing with the Henry Ford lifestyle, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and Harvey Firestone always used to go on backcountry hikes and camping trips. I'm guessing they did this just to get away from it all and have time to clear their heads as well. Bringing all that together, I always wanted to go on an adventure of my own. So a small group of guys that I went to high school with, and one of which I went to college with, we decided to go on a few section hikes of the Appalachian Trail every year since we've been out of college. Recently, like in the last two years recently, we have really struggled with finding a career path in life and really what we wanted to do. Well, I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but they had, they had their struggles as well. So, with all of us in agreement, we all decided to attempt a through hike of the Appalachian Trail from Maine to Georgia, spanning almost 2,200 miles in 2019. So, I am stepping away for a bit to clear my head really think about things, and see what I'm supposed to do with my life. It won't be easy stepping away from everything that I've built so far, but then again, nothing good ever comes easy. Thanks again for everything. Garrett Mathias